Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today, the wonderful Zach Stafford from the Vibe Check podcast and famed journalist is back in The Stacks. We're here to discuss our first Stacks Book Club pick of 2024, the bold and hilarious satirical novel Erasure by Percival Everett. The book was published in 2001 and tells the story of Thelonious Monk Ellison, who is a Black writer who gets a little bit upset about the way that Black literature is being published. He goes on to write an unintentionally successful novel that parodies popular Black fiction. The book is also the basis of a brand new film called American Fiction, which was written and directed by Cord Jefferson. Today, Zach and I talk about the book, Erasure. We talk about what worked for us, what didn't. We talk about the novel within the novel. And we also talk a little bit about the adaptation of the film, American Fiction. Here's what you need to know. There are spoilers of the book, Erasure, but there are no spoilers of the movie, American Fiction. So if you haven't seen the movie, you can definitely listen today. Make sure you listen to the end of today's episode to find out what our February book club pick will be. Everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love this show and you want more of it, like inside access, the best bookish community on earth, and more, you've got to join The Stacks Pack by going to patreon.com slash The Stacks. For just $5 a month, you get access to our year-long reading challenge, our bonus episodes, entry into The Stacks Pack Discord, which is amazing. You get to come to our monthly virtual book club meetups. It is an incredible space to be a part of if you are a book lover, if you want to read more books, if you just want to be in community with a bunch of nerds, come join the Stacks Pack. And I should say this, I could not make the Stacks without this group, without the support of the Stacks Pack through Patreon. So if you like the show and you just want to show some love, but you don't care about perks, you can still join the Stacks Pack. I would really appreciate it. Head to patreon.com slash the Stacks to join. And a quick shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Deirdre, Marcy Major, Ash H., Alyssa Munson, Courtney Marshall, Elizabeth Malcolm, Molly, and Rebecca Williams. Thank you all so much to our brand new members. And thank you, of course, to the entire Stacks Pack. All right. Now it is time for my conversation with Zach Stafford about Erasure by Percival Everett. All right, everybody. We are back. I am joined again by my favorite person on earth. It is Zach Stafford. Welcome back to the Stacks. Oh my God. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back with my favorite host on the earth is you. Oh my gosh. I love it. Don't tell your co-host that you like me more I won't. Than that. I won't. It's fine. Um, and it's book club and we're talking about Erasure by Percival Everett, his 2001 novel. I will give a quick sort of synopsis now, which is that the novel follows Thelonious Monk Ellison, who is a writer, a black writer who is writing some weird fucking shit and nobody likes it and he gets mad and he he's like, I'm going to write a quote unquote black novel called My Pathology. And the novel, of course, (laughs) takes off. 
And it's about that journey as well as the journey with him and his family and his mother who has early the early stages of Alzheimer's and the death of his sister and his father's suicide and his brother's coming out and just juicy family drama. So that's the book. Zach, we always start here. Generally, what did you think of Erasure? Generally, I loved it more than I thought I would. You know, when you told me we were going to read this book, I thought, well, I should because, you know, I love the film that it's based off of. It's all anyone's talking about in terms of like, you know, Oscar worthy things. So, you know, I tried it whenever there's a big movie, I tried to read the book. So I felt like it was like homework for a minute. And then I started it and I read it in a day. I think it was like, I literally just like squirreled away and just dove in. And um, I think, you know, and we'll get probably deeper into this. I love that I read two books in one, that there is like the fictional mm. book that he is yeah, my yeah, pathology, yeah. which we'll talk about. But I love that. I love the world that we were kind of diving into. And I just love like what it asks of a lot of us that are black working in institutions that we have complicated relationships with and what and asking us what we produce and who is it for and how does it help them. Like I think all of that was so cool. So yeah, all in all, I loved it, loved it, loved it um, so much. What did you think? I also loved it. I We did Percival Everett's novel, The Trees, on this podcast in 2022, I believe, as our book, as a book club pick. And so revisiting his work, and this is his early, an earlier novel, and he's just so sharp and mm-hmm. so funny. And this novel felt like it could have been written last year, but it was written in 2001. And it's just like, it's so refreshing to read about things that feel current from the past because it's a reminder that like none of this is new. And while yeah. it might be new for me and I'm experiencing it new, it's not actually a new conversation or a new argument. I also am a huge fan of any novel where the author slash narrator slash character are disdainful like, like yes. and this book just drips in disdain. So and I just, I, I, that like sarcastic, like you're a fucking idiot and I'm mm-hmm. Percival Everett vibe mm-hmm. is just mm-hmm. so thrilling to me. And then what I also liked about this, and we will talk about the movie, but what I liked about the book that I thought was missing from the movie is that the book is smarter than I am. Yes. Like there were parts of the book where I was like, I don't know that I understand this. And like, what is he trying to say with this? That I I really like feeling challenged in that way. And for me, the movie didn't have that. Like I was like, I get it with the movie. Yeah. And so and we'll, we'll talk more about it. And we won't spoil the movie, but we will spoil the book. So if you have not read the book and you want to read the book, pause now, read it and come back. We will not spoil anything from the movie. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, you can keep listening. Okay, now we're going to dive in. I want to start with the epigraph, which is a Mark Twain quote that says, I could never tell a lie that anybody would doubt, nor a truth that anybody would believe. And it's such a good start for a Mm -hmm. book that's all about truth and lies and fact and fiction. And also I love it because he's got a new book coming out this year, Percival Everett, called James, which is a retelling of Huck Finn by Mark Twain, told from the perspective of Jim the enslaved Shut black up. person. Really? So I also just like love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. And just hot tip. I'm told it's like the best book of the year. I'm told it's fucking amazing. So everyone go get your copy of James. That's amazing. What um, happened to the, um, wasn't there a controversial statue of James that was just taken down? Maybe. I'd have to look into it, but yeah, maybe. there was like, there's been, what's amazing about this is that there's been a lot of conversation around like, the art world and how they treat that book and that kind of how they exalt yeah. it and the slave uh, character in it. So I love that we're giving that person a real voice and story through Percival Everett, which yeah. is going to be so cutting. That's so amazing. good. Yeah, I can't wait. Um, that's all I wanted to say about that paragraph. I didn't have more to say. I just liked it and I thought it was funny. Um, so, okay. What I do want to talk about is the balance in the book between the satire of my pathology and Monk as an author and then the sort of like human tender side of his family and the personal stuff. You saw the movie first. So you Mm -hmm. kind of knew to expect that. I had no clue that the book was going to be so tender, so filled with interiority. And I'm wondering like how, how that helped you or didn't help you like understand the idea of erasure. 
Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so I think I was really surprised that the interiority of Monk and his love for his family and the family dynamics and how complicated yeah. and crushing they were, depending on whose relationship you're talking about, were true to the book itself. Because I feared that you know the book was going to be this really like cutting satire that's really brilliant and academic, and then the book is a you know boiled down version of that, and they heighten the f- family drama to make it more accessible. But that's not the case. Is that you both get like family drama in both, and in, in some ways, I like Erasure's usage of family and how like his sister is threaded yeah. throughout, even after her death, in ways that um, you know the movie doesn't. So I think for me, that's where the book felt the most real was that I know so many academics that are creating at this high level, thinking theoretically, thinking about the abstractness of blackness and black literature, uh, but are also dealing with like the very ordinary and mundane tragedy of life as a person with family getting sick and family members not getting along. So I think, you know, it was, and it was really beautiful to see it tracked against you know, the satire of my pathology, which was another family story of someone, you know, the whole, right. that character is like, got many baby mamas and really just wants to be right. loved by his family the same ways that many right. uh, ways Monk did. So, so yeah, for me, I really thought it was, um, it was great. It gave like relief in, in what I think so much about what it did and what this type of accessibility within you know, stories about race and structures does is, um, it, you get to like hear him talk about like the state of a black writer and how no one cares. And then it's mm-hmm. next to like him being deeply cared about his mother and him deeply caring about her right. and the family. So it's kind of these like at times contradictions, like there's so much love in his life, but right. he doesn't feel the love, but that's how we all feel. You know, it's, we're all complicated yeah. messes. And I, for me, what I thought was really nice about having the satire alongside with like this more like, I don't know, straight like versus mm-hmm. comedy is like, Percival Everett is showing us what story we could have Mm -hmm. if all black authors didn't have to make art about being black. Not that his family story isn't about blackness because it is because any story about any black person or black character is about blackness and does deal with race. And like we could talk about, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's being like more prevalent in black communities and all those things. But I liked that instead of being like, Monk is a person too and like going through things and whatever. He's basically putting up these two worlds right next to each other and saying like all of like this story deserves to be told just as much of the story about like fighting against racism and art. And like this is this is blackness as art and like blackness on display. And all of these things are just as black as having four baby mamas or mm-hmm running from the police or whatever stereotypes. And I, and I think that like doing it this way, showing us like really showing us instead of telling us and giving equal weight to the stories really stark, like really exemplifies that point. He's like very clearly saying to us, like, listen, I want to tell a story of a middle-class or middle upper-class black educated family that has nothing to do expressly about race. And like, that's the book I want to write. And I'm being told I can't. And like, I just, I loved him doing that. I do wonder if in 2024, that book, this book feels dated a little bit in that way, because we have so many more stories and not just middle class, but also like middle aged, like Mm -hmm. Monk is like 40 or ish. Right. And like, we just like, don't, so many, so much literature about black people is about like younger black people or told from like a much older character, like looking back on mm-hmm. the past and like just having this like middle-aged guy just like do middle-aged shit, like deal with an ailing yeah. parent. I just, I really, I really, it made the satire sing. I think yeah. that's what I'm trying it, to say. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're so right. And you know, why I know you're right is I can think of a few other ways that this book could have and most likely probably was being pushed to go, which is, you know, if if I was a publisher and I heard, you know, the pitch was, I'm going to write a book. It's about this writer who's not very well known, who writes this like satire that breaks out and becomes this phenomenon. 
and becomes like famous overnight and is, you know, and then is thinking about his own state, the state of literature. I would think you'd focus more on like the fame and the like, he got rich, he's yeah. now running around town, he has all this access and he's having this like crisis of, you know, of right. identity because of wealth and success. And the movie goes more into that. The book isn't as interested in that as much about the the no. kind of the the reward for selling out. It's really interesting, like the process of selling out and the process of dealing with these two truths at once. And how do you sit in a body at a point of contradiction and is it a contradiction or like can can you hold all these things at once and I thought that was really smart because there's like a way in which like you know the the Hollywood version of this is the glamorous like rich guy gets caught fooling everybody in this movie this book is not interested in that because like the interesting question I think to Percival Everett but also to me and it's probably why this book does work is because I'm not actually interested in what it's like to get famous right I'm so much more interested in what it's like to decide that you're gonna do this thing that feels icky to you because it's a joke or a bit and then what happens to you when you realize that your little joke is not being taken as a joke and like what does that do to you as an artist and like I think he gets at it in the book I think there's a part where he sort of questions like what, how does, or maybe, I don't know, I wrote it down. It might not have even been in the book. It might've just been something that came to me, but like, how does Monk feel about writing in an industry where my pathology is the greatest thing mm-hmm. since sliced bread, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think about that a lot too. It's like, I, I mean, I work in adjacent to publishing, not technically in publishing, but like I work in the book world. And there's so many times where a book that I think is like, bad like not good or like harmful or racist or homophobic or whatever is like lauded and I am like why am I here like what is that and so like that question and I'm sure like you're you're a journalist like you've worked in media for so long I'm sure like that has come up for you too where something happens and you're like why do I even want to be part of this yeah. Yeah. That's something I feel, I felt so deeply when I began my career because you have these examples of people who sell out. You know, I remember I had a moment where I'll say this, I won't name names, but I remember I met with a person, a colleague at Fox News and I was doing MSNBC at the time. And he said to me, oh, you should come to Fox. They let us get um, custom suits here and they do all these amazing things. And I thought, well, you're at Fox. Like, yeah, you have a bigger audience, but you're at Fox and you're selling out. So, you know, you're always told when you work in media or the arts that, you know, if worse comes to worse, just like sell your ethics up the river and like go jump into this thing. So then when you start to fight for a career around the thing that you care most about, um, you do have this crisis of conscience of like, okay, so I'm fighting so hard to be in this place, but for who and for what if like most people want this other thing? And what does it mean that I'm not this other thing? What does it mean that my story doesn't look like, you know, this, the my pathology story, which is very much a story of someone living in Compton that is like something you would have watched in um, the late 90s with like the movie Friday. It was like very like that world. And right. It's like, how do you live in a black body that isn't like that? And how do you create from a black body that isn't that? So I think it just was really, um, really, it, it, I think it touches a nerve for a lot of people like us. And and it's why Court Jefferson took it on because he, you know, he grew up in a, in a mixed race family. He went to, he was college educated. He worked as a journalist successfully and transitioned to a TV writing career. Like he never lived in this world that, you know, people want to see a black director create from. Um, so he's trying to find his own way through using, you know, erasure. So, and it makes me think a lot about um, the fact that the book, My Pathology is Satirizing, is pushed by Sapphire, pushed. which is- A novel by Sapphire. A novel by Sapphire. <laughs> Which, like, when we were younger, it was a phenomenon. I mean, it became precious, but yeah. do you remember when it came out? It was a huge deal. I don't remember when it came out. I do remember – I only remember precious and, like, that whole thing. That's – yeah. I think I probably – maybe it wasn't because I was probably too young when it came out to think of it as a big deal. I think when precious came out, push was everywhere with the movie, and they made us read it in school. And I remember just being so confused by – why is this the thing that all these white people are obsessed with reading about black people and and understanding me? And then the movie itself, Precious, which, you know, gave a few people an Oscar and did a great job, you know, has had a lot of criticism. So it's interesting to have, you know, Erasure directly critiquing a book that is maybe one of the more famous black novels to come out in the past few decades. Yeah. So for people, so Push came out in 1996 
this book was written in 2001, but it's set in, I think, 1995. So it's in a pre-push world that Monk is living in, but Percival Everett is reflecting back on this, this sort of like literary moment. One of the things that like I struggle with with this book and the movie and like a lot of art by Black artists who are critiquing white institutions is this thing that like when middle class or well-off Black folks get like racismed on Mm -hmm. by the whites, they punch down on poor Black people. Mm -hmm. And like the joke becomes poor or working class Black people. And like the performance of of like a certain quote unquote type of black person. And that's the joke. And I think that Percival Everett is sort of doing something slightly different, but certainly in the movie, that's the joke. And in a lot of other art, that's the joke. And I just, it's, it's hard to grapple with. Like I struggle with it because I understand that it's like illustrative of, of a bigger problem, but also like, why don't we just make fun of white people? Yeah. Like, why yeah. don't we just punch yeah. up? Like, why are yeah. you punching down? And I, I don't know that I have an answer, but like when I saw the movie, it was so clear that the laughter was segregated as fuck. Mm-hmm. Like it would be mm-hmm. like certain jokes, all the white dudes would be like, oh, 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 oh. and I was sitting next to um, my white husband who did not laugh once because I think he was <laughs> feeling a lot <laughs> of ways. Edge. Um, yeah, he was like, I don't want to get caught up in this. And then um, on the other side of me were two black women and then there were two black people in front of me and four white people behind me. And it was literally like the black people would laugh mm-hmm. and then the white people would laugh. And so I just, I, there's something about like, what is the joke? Who is the joke yeah. on and why? Yeah. And you know, I, I love this so much because you know, what this makes me think about is, I saw the film for the first time at the Savannah Film Festival for SCAT. So a very okay. white. And I was there with Cord and the judges of this festival. And the festival is like famously like pretty white. And people were getting their life in that theater. They were laughing. And I felt so uncomfortable at times. But I've, you know, I, I do so much work in entertainment and, and Broadway. I mean, you know, yeah. theaters like the same way. So you yeah. sit in a strange loop and you're like, why are you laughing at this joke? <laughs> like, do you even understand what's happening? A strange loop is definitely in the same conversation. Yeah, it's in the same conversation as this. So, um, so yeah. So once I got past that, I did have that thought of why is it this certain type of black person is always something that we as black people are making fun of when we have a lot of evidence that this type of black person is also incredibly incredibly prolific. Like you look at Tupac. Tupac is taught in colleges as like a literary mastermind. Like his work right. is incredible. Jay-Z is another person that was a drug dealer that rose up. So we, we don't have to like take in the ghetto as a people and like make it the thing that we keep punching at. And instead we should give it right. a life of its own and a breath of its own. And the book, and the book does that. I think that's why I think it's interesting about like the my pathology gets so much space in the book because it is still satire, but he's, yeah. he is attempting to give this character more of a story where in the movie, you don't really understand you don't get a preview of the book really yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like also just the idea that like a, a Van Gogh Jenkins, the main character of Mm -hmm. my pathology exists is like such stereotypical bullshit that like Mm -hmm. it doesn't exist. But we've been told so many times that like this is a black story and this is what exists that like it makes it flattens all of us and it flattens specifically like poor black people who are like fully realized human beings, which shouldn't have to be said. But like as this joke continues of like the punching down on on like poor black people or disenfranchised black people like it becomes something that has to be said because it's like it continues to proliferate you know and like obviously this book was written a long time ago but none of it is new like none of this like this like this particular performance of blackness is new and I just there's something about it that like even while I think Percival Everett's joke is a little more complicated, it is a joke that I question every time because it feels not great. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And you know what you're getting at points to another thing that you brought up, which is this Ouroboros effect of it all, the snake eating itself, because this joke only continues the cycle of, you know, 
a work is made that flattens the black experience, makes us a caricature, then an intellect tears it down by making a work that makes fun of that thing. And then through that process, right. they create a new kind of like caricature and it keeps kind of right. feeding itself over and over. And and I walked out of the, the movie and then walked away from the book being like, this is amazing, but does it do, does it actually structurally change anything? Does it actually move us forward? Because right. I feel like I'm still chasing my tail in a really entertaining way. And I think it, you know, that's why I think the book is important because it's, it's like, okay, maybe we should stop having this conversation in 2001. Maybe we should like create new conversations in 2024. Right. But I still don't know exactly what that looks like. And um, right. yeah, I don't know. For me, for me, the joke of the book is also on Monk. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think for me in the movie, the joke of the movie is not on Monk. And mm. I think that that mm-hmm. to me is like the slight difference between the two. And I think that's where I struggled with the movie is that the joke of the movie is like, ha ha ha, well-meaning whites and also ha 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 performance of like this kind of blackness. Yeah. But I do feel like because we get so much of Monk and we're with him so intensely in the book, I also, my reading is that Percival Everett is critiquing Monk as much as he's critiquing the other pieces. And I think that's what makes the book work. And like, that's what holds it up, but it's such a fine line. And I could see a lot of people reading the book and maybe not feeling that same way. Mm -hmm. And, And I've heard Percival Everett talk and he, at least in like certain interviews, you know, he, he's from the South. He lives in California. Now he's written a lot about, things that have to do with race and also things that don't necessarily. And he's sort of, at least the way he presents himself is like as a person who's not interested in that stuff or like, it's not that he's not interested, but it's like, he doesn't care what you say about it. He's going to say what he wants to say, but like he believes black people and white people are all awful. Like that kind mm-hmm. of energy, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I do think like comes through in this book, certainly, but it's interesting because he puts that out into a world where he knows that people are going to discuss it and like pick it apart. So it's sort he's sort of like a provocateur, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I guess like my, this is sort of like a piggyback topic on all of this, which is like the art of it all. Like who, who does it belong to? Who does my pathology belong to? Like, yeah, I, don't, I, I wish I had like a more yeah, no, eloquent I, way of saying it. But no, I think like what what the book does by, you know, juxtaposing, you know, his very upper middle class upbringing, you know, he's the child of doctors, his sis, his bro- his siblings become right. doctors, they have a house um, on the shore, um, you know, and then he he's never lived anywhere close to Compton, like he doesn't know the inner city, but right. he's able to produce a work that is actually coming through like a white understanding of blackness. I mean, in, in the book, what's right. interesting is that he, it's not till the end where he meets this um, half sister of his that he has no idea it exists, which is not in the movie. Um, but he meets this half sister that he realizes like, oh, there are people in his family that have had maybe a life closer to, you know, his character in my pathology. So I think it, it brings us to the point of what you're saying is, when we're creating this art, who who is it for at every level? And is it ever about blackness or black people? And I would say, I mean, it, it's not in many ways. It's, I mean, even the fact that we're talking about a book that's not going to be up for an Oscar, most likely, it's even the Oscars aren't really for black people. This is always about a white right. gaze and a white interest in these stories, which I think is the existential crisis at the end of the book is then like, what? then why engage with them? Why even talk about them? Which feels very... Percival Everett to be like, well, everyone's horrible. Like, yeah. like, like it's like this in this road leads nowhere. Actually, it just ends, and it's no good. Well, that's the ending. I mean, that's the last line of the book. He like, I have a lot of questions about. We could talk about the ending. I don't know what exactly happens. I don't think anybody knows exactly no. what happens. But the last line of the book is hypothesis non vingo non fingo, which means like I frame no hypothesis. Which I took to mean, you know, so we get to the end. Monk becomes a judge for the National Book Award. Um, they And then somehow his book, My Pathology, now known as Fuck, is up for the award. He doesn't want it to win. The other four judges do. It wins the award. And then they announce the winner and they're like, is he here? And like, because he's an enigma or whatever. And then uh, Stag. And then 
uh, Monk walks up towards the stage. He's sort of like is maybe becoming stag. Mm -hmm. And then the guy's like, what are you doing here, Monk? And he's like, I don't know, maybe having a stroke. I don't know. And then he, and then it sort of goes to nothing. We get like a new little paragraph break with little X's and it says hypothesis non-fingo. I frame no hypothesis. Um, And I, did you have a take on that? Like, did you think that was Percival saying that to us? Did you think that was Monk? saying that to us? Do you think that was Monk saying that to the room? It's in the italics. So it's sort of like... I took it as Percival saying it. I thought it was Percival being like... Me too. Taking us into our world. It's like the bridge out to be like, this exists Mm. today and this piece you're holding is a part of this. Like it's all connected in this conversation. So I think he's saying like, I don't really have the answer to all of this or how to, where it sits or what mm. to do with it. That's up for you to think about. But like, I'm done. And I and I kind of love that he just like ends it. Like, I'm like, okay, we're, we're, we're done. We're done with this conversation. Cool. Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's very like, good luck, you fucking yeah, idiots. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, have fun trying to figure out whatever I'm talking about. And I liked it. And I also liked that like, we didn't get, to the literary awards until way later yeah. in the book. Like I like that that was like sort of this quick little thing. Um, and I I personally <laughs> touched a chord because I am currently reading for the LA Times Book Prize right oh, now. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah, until the end of this month uh, or to the beginning of February. And I was like, yeah, it's that. It's Is it very that similar? Much, oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Uh you know, I, it's me and two other people in this case, and it's not 2021, so it's not that exactly. But, like, mm-hmm. the amount of stuff you have to read, like, how all the books have these, like, shit blurbs, how every book needs a better editor, like, how everyone's sort of jockeying for this thing. And they all, like, we all have our own, like, personalities and, mm-hmm. like, we're all, like, these own, like, caricatures of ourselves. Yeah. All of that felt very real. Um I'm not reading 400 to 500 books for it, but I am reading 150 books and that feels like a lot. Um, That is for how long? So I started doing this in June, I think, and I'm done in February. Wow. So So you're doing like a few books a week. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's a lot. Uh, (laughs) We don't have to finish everything. Just like in the book, they don't finish everything. Like you can, you know, read into it or whatever. But it definitely, I was like, Thank you, Percival, for seeing seeing me. But I also just like, I loved those scenes because I loved how he wrote white people talking Mm -hmm. about black things. Like where Mm -hmm. he's like, like the common blacks and like, (laughs) and like, this is the black, this is the best thing in African-American literature I've read in a long time. And it's just like, we need these stories. And the black person in the room is like, we don't need this story. And they're like, no, we need these stories. Yeah. Um, and it just feels like so well-meaning white, which is kind one thousand percent. But I think he also complicates it by, you know, the character Marilyn, his love interest, who enjoys the books he hates. So, okay, wait a second. When you read the oh, you saw the movie first, yeah. When I read the book, I thought Marilyn was a white. <laughs> Is she? I'm not convinced she's not a white. They don't don't give her a descriptor. She's black in the movie. Yeah, because Erica Alexander plays her. I'm not convinced that she is black in the book. (gasps) I would be... But I could be wrong because sometimes I miss little details as I read. They don't say... There's no qualifier. There's nothing is said. There's no qualifier. So, like, the only only thing that people qualify with, like, partners is um, the brother who's gay. So they talk about him, but they don't even talk about the yeah. racial identity of the kids. It just kind of assumed that it's black yeah. kids. I, I thought she was white the whole time. So when I went into the movie and it's Eric Alexander and he first meets her, the neighbor, I'm like, oh, maybe there's another neighbor in this movie. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, because she has a different name also yeah. in the in the in the movie. Um, and I'm like, oh, this is Marilyn. Yeah. I read Marilyn is white the entire time. That is so funny because in the book, something else that's not in the movie and this ruins nothing for either is that he has the colleague at the conference that he sleeps with sometimes. And I read her yes. as white, but I didn't read Marilyn. Definitely white. Like she was a white woman. That was that was its own thing that we could read into. But then yeah. I took um, 
Marilyn as black because I assumed that how they were talking about the the place where they had the house was deeply black. Like there was a lot of black people that had lived right. there historically. So I thought that was like a nod to like she's probably black and comes from like a family that has like deep black roots here. Got but it. gentrification also happens in that place. So you don't really know actually. I don't I don't know. I didn't know I don't know the place like where the beach house was. Like I'm not familiar mm-hmm. with I'm a West Coast person, so yeah. I'm not really familiar with like those East Coast like enclaves or whatever. But in my head she was white. I, I could be totally That's wrong. So Maybe funny. it is said somewhere. But like so I read this so the scene where he's like, You're reading this book? And she's like, Yeah. And I loved it. And like I love my bivology and I love Weeds lives in the ghettos or whatever. Yeah. I'm like, this fucking white lady, like, <laughs> she's just obsessed with black people. Like, tell her off. Like I was totally on yeah. Monk's side yeah. in that scene. Whereas like in the movie with a black person, I'm like, mm, yeah. And it does radically abusive. And yeah, and it radically changes the scene a lot. Which I mean, maybe it's like a point of his. It's like, well, does it matter who's reading it, and does it change how you you take it on or deal with it? And I guess it's true. Like when it, if it's a white woman saying I'm okay with this book, then you're like, oh, who are you to say this? Versus a black woman saying, oh, I enjoyed this book. I needed like a break from hard hard reading. It's, right. It's interesting. But also, like, even if Marilyn is black. There are also black people who, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, like yeah. not all skin folk are kin folk. Yeah. Like there's definitely black people who read my pathology and are like, this is brilliant. This oh, yeah. speaks to our people. I mean, Precious you was know? made like, by Lee Daniels, who was obsessed right. with the book. So, you know. And Oprah. And Oprah was obsessed Wasn't with Oprah the book. Yeah, Oprah yeah. was part of it too. So it's like, no, you're right. There are those people who are down, if in, even if it's not in yeah. the long run the best for the community. Right, right. But yes, I definitely read Marilyn is White. And in the movie, I was like, what's happening? That is so funny. And like when I saw the names go across and it was like Eric Alexander, I was like, I wonder who she plays. Like I literally was like, what is Maxine doing? I was like, what's going on? Um, That's so funny. I don't know. I read her as white. She's white to me. Um, Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. 
Okay, we're back. Um, I almost forgot. We had to take a break for our sponsors. Thank you, sponsors. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the writing okay. itself because I love the way this man writes. Mm-hmm. He is his pacing is so fast, so sharp. He does in like one or two sentences what takes other writers like a paragraph and a half. Like he'll situate you in time and space so quickly because this yeah. book has a lot of flashbacks. Yeah. And he'll just be like, he'll be like, what's that? I'm 10 in my dad's office. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, great, thank you. I didn't need you to be like, I look at my youthful hands Mm -hmm. as a 10-year-old boy fresh out of class Mm -hmm. with my teacher, Mr. Mark. Like, I'm just like, it's like, this is where we are. Or it'll be like Maynard. Instead of being like Maynard said, there's a part where he's like, from Maynard. Like, it's like, hello, from Maynard. Goodbye, from Lorraine. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, just so... I just love it because he he just dispenses with the bullshit constantly, even in the way he writes. And I found that to be just a dream. I agree. He's very exacting as a writer. Like I never yes. had to guess or think about a lot of things that he was trying to say, where we're going. I always knew where I was headed in certain moments. Um, so, you know, he was really, he's just very clear. And I think that's needed sometimes with... Um, you know, we're talking about race and identity. People get very convoluted, and he's very like no bullshit mm-hmm. the whole time, and I loved yeah. it. And I even did love the, like the plainness. I mean, it was ridiculous and not accurate, but my pathology, how he is so good at writing so badly in that, was like yes. up against the other parts. It's like really like I'm like you can write like you write like this is art like what you're making. Like, you're able to change yeah. form really fast depending on who your character is. So, did you like having? Because a lot of people in the Stacks Pack are in the Discord talking about like how much my pathology there is in the book. It's about 70 pages. It goes mm-hmm. from page 62 to 132 in my copy. Did you feel like it was too much? Did you like it? Like how were you, how was your experience of my pathology? I began hating that it was so long when I realized it wasn't just a chapter uh-huh. and that it was like yeah. a substantial part of the book was going to be this. I was like, oh yeah. God, why is this happening? But as I went, got into it, and release myself to the story. It also takes place in LA, which I'm very interested in things in yeah, LA. Cause I'm like, how it. do you, how do you write about a place <laughs> that I live in and where are you going? And how are you taking a bus from Compton to West Hollywood? I didn't know that was a thing right. that something happened. Um, <laughs> but um, I liked it. I thought it was the right amount. I could have read more, honestly, but I mean, maybe that's why push exists. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you go read push now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so people I, are, I liked it too. So people are not happy about the length. I think people don't don't some people don't like it. I, like they think that maybe like the joke goes on too long. Yeah. I sort of liked watching him have fun with it and like push it and like because he knows at like six you're done or sex I believe is how it's spelled in the yeah. book. Um, like he knows you're done and he's like no no come on, come on 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 I'm just ha- I was having a good time here and like I loved I loved that like the kids names were like the medicine. Oh, incredible. Like, I thought that was so funny. I think Percival Everett is one of the best namers of characters in his books. Like Van Gogh Jenkins is so brilliant. It's so funny. Stag R. Lee is so brilliant. Thelonious Monk Ellison is so brilliant. And like, I just loved watching him riff mm-hmm. and like do his shit. And I also agree with you. I think there are parts of my pathology where I'm like, wow, he's actually, a, he's not just trying to write bad. He's trying to make a point that that bad still, like, there's, like, some craft to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Like, he has really taken the time to write a quote-unquote bad novel. Percival, yeah. that is, not, not Monk. But, like, the actual book within the book is, like, it's not just thrown, it's not how I would do it. I would be like, yo, yo, yo. Like, it's yeah. not, it is that, but it's better than that. Yeah. Like, it's really professional shit. And I really liked that. And like, it's just, there's like range to it. Mm-hmm. There was like a good little plot. Like yeah. it, it, it also was like sort of like, fun and silly. The syntax is like kind of flushed out in that like, this is a language and it's nothing like I've read before, like how he says like use and six, like I've never seen it written that way. And like you typically see, right. I think black slang written 
you know, a lot of it, you know, is like post-slavery vibe, where it's like that very like right. post-Civil War or post-Emancipation Proclamation way of talking. Um, like the color purple is the best example of that. Um, yeah. Or then you have like, you know, Friday or the other versions that are like poor the inner city kids. Right. But how he's writing, I was like, I've never seen people write words like this, but I know exactly what you're getting at. And it created its own sense of place for me that felt very like yeah. his and it didn't feel like he was because I think a lazy writer or writer that didn't care as much would have just bullshit at that part and be like no one's really going to read this they're going to skip it but he did think like he was really thoughtful about what he was creating and how it ended even like the ending was pretty like wild <laughs> yeah and like there's parts of that book that are mirrored throughout the mm-hmm. whole of Erasure like I don't know if you caught this, but there's three different scenes where someone is like getting makeup, hair and makeup done before they go on television. Yeah, yeah. And I like loved that because it's like it happens with Van Gogh Jenkins. It happens in that interlude with the game show that ends with the audience said nothing. They were dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that, which I fucking loved. And then it happens before Monk goes on the, yeah, the Oprah show. show. Yeah. Or he's Kenya fake. Or he's he's yes, Kenya. Name. It's in his Sagar League. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so like I I loved like those little things. I was very curious about the hard R on the N-word mm-hmm. in yeah. it. Because that to me had to have been a choice because the G the GGA version exists as well. And I wasn't I was really curious about that because that felt like I think maybe that was him showing his hand as monk. Oh yeah. Yeah, it felt very, like, I was the first thing I caught when reading. I was like, oh, how you're spelling the N-word usually tells you who's saying it and how this is being written yes. is of a very certain type of person in a certain place and a certain meaning, and it's not in-group speech or the ways in which we use it. So he's making a point here of being like, well, this is who this audience is for. It's for This is for white people. This is what, how white people use it. So I'm going to write yeah. it in this like code, which then is his thesis is that the whole thing is written in a black language for white people to understand, not for black people to understand. Right. So I think it was it was smart. Right. You can tell, you know, man teaches at USC, right? He's brilliant, 30 books. Like yeah. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Um, okay, so one of the things we always do is we talk about the title and the cover, mm-hmm. but I want to give the the title a little more time than we normally do because I wasn't sure why the book was called Erasure until I got to the scene about the erased artwork. And then I was like, this is the greatest title usage ever because there's a 0% chance that I would tell anyone about this book and be like, what do you think this book should be called? And they would be like, Erasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so in in the, um, it's on page t- 228, there's this scene between two artists because there's these interludes that I don't know that, I, that's what I was like, I don't know that I understand what's going on here. But there's these interludes, uh, I think 227, sorry. Um, and this one is between like two artists and one of them is de Kooning and the other one is Rauschenberg. And he's like, draw me this picture. And he does. And then he's like, I don't care what it is. And he's like, well, I intend to erase it. And so he gets the picture, he erases it. And he's like, well, where is it? And he's like, here it is. It's this erase. This is the piece of paper I gave you with the drawing you did, but I erased it. And then he's like, will you put your name on it? He's like, well, that's because this is my artwork now. I erased it. The, the art is the erasure mm-hmm. of your artwork. And I've already sold it for 10 grand. And he said, you sold my picture. He said, no, I erased your picture. I sold my erasing. And to me, that of course becomes like this, this is like the moral center of the book. It's like, who does the art belong to once the art is put into the world? Is it the artist's work? And what happens to it when other people attach themselves to the thing? And I feel like, again, for me, Erasure the Book is getting at something different than American fiction, the movie. Mm -hmm. And that became extremely clear to me in thinking about the title and thinking about this idea of like, it's not just about getting famous for this fake Mm -hmm. performance of blackness. It's about being an artist who's fighting what the audience wants versus what I want to make versus what is good. Right. He talks, he has that other scene where he talks about good art. All art is art, whether it's good or bad, but not all other things are considered Mm -hmm. 
what they are if they're bad. And I just, that to me is so profound. Mm -hmm. Like thinking about these things, like, because then the question becomes who does stag Arlie belong to? Who does my pathology slash fuck belong to? And if it is monk, if it is monk's work, but then it becomes this whole other thing. Who's responsible for it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and what's amazing about, I love how you're talking about this because I hadn't really caught onto that until you were talking. I was like, oh, that is correct. Cause I got to that scene and I'm like, what is he talking about? I'm like, oh, this is kind of why the book is called this, but okay, whatever. I didn't give it much thought, but thinking about, <laughs> um, you know, the practice of taking away from art and that being the th- the power of it is like the capturing of it, the owning of it, no matter what the substance of it is so much about being black in America across art and just lived experiences. Right. And I think it's also why the book and movie are very different in that Core Jefferson decided that I want to adapt this book and I want to make it into a thing called American fiction. And I have, as a black filmmaker, I want to make this thing that's kind of like pointing at the flattening of my experience as a black man where I don't know if Percival had the same ambitions of writing the book. He was more interested in like, yeah. what? why can't I just write the thing I want to write and do the thing I want to do mm-hmm. and that be seen as important? Where Cord was like, no, I want to make the black film about the black thing, about black people not being able to have agency. Like, I think it's interesting. So I think like, you know, the movie isn't about erasure. It's about fiction. It's about yeah. creation of things and how you're, you prosper for them. And the book is so much about what is lost when we don't see things for what they are or let people be who they are and take them all, take them from it. So, Yeah. I just, I ended up really liking the title because of the way he sort of justifies it throughout the book Mm -hmm. um, in a way that I wasn't expecting for sure. Um, I, I have to ask you this because you're a black gay man. What did you think of Bill and like the depiction of the brother. Well, is it, it's Bill in the book and Cliff in the movie. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, okay. It's so, fu- okay. So Sam Sanders and I, and, and I don't care if he's mad at me for saying this. Um, he really likes Sterling K. Brown in the movie. And I enjoyed him too. I think he's so attractive. He's okay. so funny. I don't think the character is very additive in many ways. Like I don't find it to be like, in terms of like a queer identity. In the book or in the movie? In, or both? In both. Like I don't think it was like some like revolution for queer representation. I was excited he was no. there, but I thought it was pretty like flat and, you know, expected. That was the most expected part of the book. It's like, of course, the closeted black gay guy, the family's not going to be accepting of him. Okay. But I don't, it, he's the only one that's going to be critical of the mom. Sure. But that's just, I don't know. It wasn't that surprising. Um, yeah. But it added, the movie, it adds a lot of fun relief and like hilarious moments. In the book, I just feel myself very sad for him because he's obviously going through a hard time. And he dyes his hair blonde, so I kept imagining Sterling K. Brown with blonde <laughs> hair. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, so I was really interested in him, but I found myself more drawn to the sister that is the yeah. illegitimate child um, because it's the oh, first- Oh, that sister. That sister, um, because of her being uh, mixed. And, you know, I feel like mm-hmm. that- becomes this really interesting kind of existential crisis for Monk, who is black, does not identify as a mixed or biracial or anything, but he has to confront this like secret life his dad had and created and how in in some people's eyes, and some people would say this, she had a blacker experience than he did. And what does that mean right. about race and like the lived experience and what really makes race um, in America? I thought that was all very fascinating parts and how she lives with white supremacists too. It's like, of course. Like she- right. For like, yeah. Well, I think, I think that is really interesting. And like this, so this is my, this is another criticism of the movie. And I think this is probably, a, it's a really big conversation and we see it a lot in Hollywood, but in the book, Monk is specifically written as dark skin black. Yes. It is specifically said that he is dark skinned. He is descended from slaves. A much is made of this in the beginning. I mean, as far as Percival Everett makes much of anything, but it's like a whole paragraph about how this man looks black. And that is part of the performance of Stag R. Lee as we go through, like when he meets with the movie producer. And the producer's like, I didn't, I didn't believe it was real. And I have this instinct that's like, well, that's fucking racist. 
Yeah. Like, and then I'm like, wait, but it's fucking racist for you to believe it's real yeah. too, right? Like, I'm like going back and forth. But like, part of the joke of the movie or of the book is that he's able to pull off this thing because he is dark black and there's so much colorism and so much racism about what that means and how he appears. And in the movie, it's fucking Jeffrey Wright, who is very light-skinned. And I... That to me was the hardest part to reconcile of the movie because Sterling K. Brown was right the fuck there. Right there. <laughs> and I know Sit, Court Jefferson has talked about has talked about how as when he was reading the book, he mm-hmm. pictured Jeffrey Wright from the beginning. And I'm like, okay, well, so you just wanted to have Jeffrey Wright because that is not the description of the thing. But it it, it really changes. The movie and it is colorist and it is anti-black to make that choice when it's clearly written that it's a dark skin. It just, I, again, yeah. it just changes, it changes the everything. thing. So Tracy, I leading up to this and I haven't <laughs> said this to you yet. I think I told my partner uh, this. I told someone else this. I was like, I would have would have only said yes to talking about erasure with Tracy out of everybody because of this exact <laughs> thing. Because I feel like. And I say this as a friend of Chords and as someone that has worked with lots of Black creators and thinks about Blackness and representation. But who does that as, you know, a more light-skinned mixed person is like, what do we rip away from this content by not letting it be dark-skinned Black people? And that, that experience of being a dark-skinned Black man like my father is vastly different than what I experienced yes. in the world. And if I was right. pulling the stunt... You know, there's a reason why in the book, like maybe a light-skinned person does get a book deal or can even have these conversations. And like the fact that this person was dark-skinned is the radical act of like, well, they fought so hard to get here. Why can't they be here? Why do they have to keep performing a certain type of blackness where, you know, and Cord, you know, looks like our brother. And like Cord, like, of course he saw Jeffrey Wright when he read it because he was projecting himself into it. But it's like the text is about someone that is much darker and had a very specific experience. And I do think the movie would have been very different and makes more sense for like the uh, code switching that happens between Monk and Sagar Lee. Um, like someone would be like, oh yeah, this dark skinned black man sitting at this hotel. Yeah, I'm sure he's a thug. I'm sure he's all these things. We're like, yeah. the Jeffrey Wrights of the world with the Zach Staffords, people aren't really looking at me being like, mm, yes, you are Sagar Lee. Like that's just not a, a thing. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. And like, again, I mean, not to hit the nail on the head too hard, but that is an erasure. Yeah, that is a literal erasure. <laughs> black experience. Like it is it again, it fundamentally changes the joke of the book when the movie does that. And also especially in a visual medium where you're looking at the person for 90 minutes or whatever for 2 hours. Whereas when you read the book, it is like like you can sort of imagine whatever you want and it's not as in your face. But when you're watching it on a screen and you see this, because also in the literary tradition, including Percival Everett, who is light-skinned black, light-skinned black writers do have an easier time getting book deals. They mm-hmm. are able to talk about race in a way that dark-skinned black authors are not given those opportunities historically i mean like w.e.b. du bois like we're talking about some of the great like literary figures of our time look a certain way and that means something when james baldwin then gets an opportunity to write and what he says and how he's perceived right and so like that change while it makes sense in a hollywood way because like jeffrey wright is one of our great living actors and Mm -hmm. i would watch him do anything and i love him and i understand wanting to cast him in your movie it really changes what we're looking at and what we're talking about. And it is colorist and it is anti-black. And like, I, I wish, I wish that he would have just cast Sterling K. Brown, who I think could have done it wonderfully. I think like, Sterling could have done a great job. I don't even have job. to reach yeah. for another yeah. actor to do it. He's right there yeah. on screen. Yeah they, could great. Have, yeah. they could have switched them out very easily. Cause there is this like, Watching the movie, I'm like, okay, here goes. Like, all the light-skinned people get to be the heroes or the villains. They get to be centered in the story. But, you know, and I didn't think about skin tone until I read the book. So I saw the movie first. I was like, Jeffrey Wright. And then I start reading the book. And I'm like, this is not Jeffrey Wright. This is someone that looks 
like my father, my cousins, not me. Like this is not my story. <laughs> and I think, yeah. you know, I, that would be my one big change. And I mean, I guess then is it even, would Cord have even done the movie if he couldn't have someone that looked like him? Because this is very like Interesting. connected to his own experiences, I think too. And he projects a lot of that into the script and the changes he makes and the things he decides to focus on. And even the ending, I would say, is an ending that, you know, I don't know if Sterling K. Brown's character would have, I don't know. I actually don't know. I would have ended the movie ended the same way if it was a dark skinned person versus Jeffrey White. So I, I think it just, it changes yeah. everything similar to, you know, down to the girlfriend, her identity. It's, I think we just keep making this point over and over. It's like, who is in the room? Who's touching the work does matter all the time. And, yeah. and we should be thinking yeah, about that. And that is the center of the book yeah. really yeah. is like who's in the room, yeah. who's touching the work. Yeah. The only other thing I want to touch on that we didn't touch on is the sister Lisa who is killed at the beginning of the book, yes. who is a reproductive health uh, doctor and OB and she's killed, uh, murdered by an anti-abortionist at her clinic. And that as I was reading the book, because again, I saw the book before I saw the movie, I was like, this is so fucking spot on. It's uncomfortable. And I hate it mm -hmm. here that this is like so right on because I do remember when, like in the 90s when that was happening. But I also remember that being like, those are fucking wackadoodle people. Like that's fucking crazy. And now I'm like, yeah, sure. Someone would shoot up an abortion yeah. clinic. Like that feels yeah. right. And I just, it's different in the movie and we don't have to talk about that, but that moment to me, I was like, this is too spot on. Like, holy shit. I, yeah, <laughs> I was kind of annoyed reading the book that that wasn't punched up more in the movie. Like, it's kind of there, but it's not, I don't know, you don't go inside the clinic, like yeah. the book and get to know yeah. the people and like the crisis with the clinic at the end where all the doctors want to like fold out because they don't want to get yeah. shot. I thought it was just so interesting and so contemporary. And I mean, we keep talking about this, but the book is so good because it's like a James Baldwin a book where, you know, you read James Baldwin now and you're like, did he write this in 2005? And you're like, no, that was like 1965. Yeah. <laughs> like this doesn't, hasn't changed much. Um, so like this is kind of a contemporary um, book that really captured a moment that we are still emerging from and continue to, to grapple with. So I love that character. I wish, and Tracy Ellis Ross plays Lisa so well that it makes me mad that she yeah. wasn't used more. Like we need to get her doing more yeah. dramas. Like Tracy needs to do things outside of yeah. comedy. She's so good. Um, anything else we have to talk about before we go? Anything you're dying? No, to those were all the big points. I think I, is there anything else I want to talk about? No, I love this. You made me like it more, like the book more. I love the oh, book, good. but this conversation Yay. made me enjoy the book more and have more, criticism of the movie, which I did like a lot. Um, but I think what's really exciting about all of the book, the movie, the conversations is that similar to the book itself, this is all a big Ouroboros of like snake eating itself. And we're all like kind of yeah. dance, doing this dance, but I kind of like it. It's, it's fun. It feels like the right amount of stakes and it's not going to like change Hollywood if this one best picture, but I think we can all have like a fun year of talking about race and identity. It's not going to win best picture. Oppenheimer is going to win best 1, picture because that is Oscar fodder. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen it, but it's, it's like just clearly, Oscar, I walked, Oscar dreams. I walked out of there. When it, for, I can't went and saw the weekend it opened and I was like, yep, this just won. It just is when is this is what the Oscars look for. So yeah. good luck to everyone else, but like this just is. So sorry. Yeah. Sorry uh, to this man, um, but it's Oppenheimer. Yeah. Um I, I'll be interested to see. I was mid on the movie. I thought the movie was fine, but I did read the book first and then I immediately saw the movie. So it was like so fresh yeah. in my mind. Um and I also think like part of it is like I think Cord Jefferson is a great, exciting new voice, but Percival Everett is a living legend. And I just don't think Cord Jefferson is quite ready yet to contend with like a master of storytelling. Yeah. But you have to cut your teeth somewhere. It's just like it was a it's a big re it's like it would be like if I'm like, I'm gonna adapt a Toni Morrison yeah. novel for my first film. It's yeah. just like I don't know that I what? should do that. Yeah, and I can't believe Percival said yes to this day. Shocked. Like yeah. I'm like, whoa, Shocked. I can't believe you. Okay, cool, 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 cool. But you know, I think it's worth seeing, so but it's not, yeah, yeah. Yes, definitely <laughs> worth seeing. De especially if you're this far into this episode and you've listened to, and you yeah. listened to us talk about it and you've read the book, like you should definitely see the movie. But, yeah. you know, I, and I'm also such an asshole. I hate everything. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, that. But Zach, thank you so much for being here and talking about this with us. And everyone, go listen to Zach on Vibe Check, my personal favorite podcast besides my actual personal <laughs> podcast. Uh, 
it's my must listen to. I listen to you guys on Wednesday. I don't listen to my own show. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but thank you so much. Thank you. This was so great. It was so good to be back. And I'm so glad you Yay. you got me to start the year off reading a book. That was really astounding. So <laughs> everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much to Zach Stafford for coming back into the stacks. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Chantel Holder for helping to make this conversation possible. And now it is time for our February book club pick announcement. The book is Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. It is part memoir, it is part manifesto, and it is written by the absolutely brilliant Ruha Benjamin. The book is all about taking the small daily actions that lead to big structural change. You'll have to listen on February 7th to find out who our guest will be on February 28th for our discussion of viral justice. If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media. We're at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And of course, check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas. 